Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? It's 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday. It's uh, 1.30 p.m. on the East Coast, 6.30 Australian Eastern Standard Time, 6.30 p.m. UTC. I'm coming to you from California. Bill is coming to you from Florida, JT, all the way from an undisclosed location in the Caribbean. Uh, That's right. Where are you, JT? What's happened? What's what's the uh, what's the news? Uh, just needed a little break, give the family a little mental health break, and um, found a pretty good deal on a place here. So we're gonna be here for a little while, but we'll be back eventually. In Skull Island, in your supervillain lair, in the Caribbean, yeah, exactly, with pool. With a pool. Nice. 10.30 p.m. Dubai. That's what I wanted to know. That's good. Where are you, Bill? Where are you? Flow rider. Same place. Nothing has changed. The only thing that's changed is I'm drinking caffeinated water, so I'm going to talk real fast today. <laughs> Madrid. What's up? London, Ontario. How you doing? Chicago. Cool. Cyprus. I think that's a first. Krakow, Poland. I'm going to get this thing cooked, uh, started off with a somewhat of a, not a retraction, but a bit of a <laughs> correction. I somewhat uh, misframed Chamis, uh get the money comment. I agree that the way that I framed it was probably not exactly how he meant it. I would say, though, IPO, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P have somewhat backed up my uh comment however i do agree that the quotation that i used was not uh appropriate given the context so that's fair. But that also is my that money. what but also get that money yeah i mean look there's a lot of, a lot of spacs going on what was the context that he actually delivered it in I mean, I th what he was trying to tell people is he was saying, like, if you want to change the world, you need to get the money. So get as much money as you can to then use that to change the world. And where I will give him credit is I do think that he probably thinks that he's changing the world for the better with all these facts. That was a Mother Teresa where, quote, wasn't it? <clears throat> yeah, I think yeah, it's pretty close. That it was, was she like said. him and if Mother Teresa. If you want to change the world, get the money. That's right. And, and shortly thereafter, she said, fuck you, Peter Schiff. <laughs> so it's really all just like, it's it's all just quoting her. Mate, uh, if, you, if you can't say fuck you, what's the point of the billion dollars? That's right. Or like my boy Mike, non-gap, he's got that Substack money. He's got the FU money too, just a little bit different. Substack money, yeah, that's where the real money is. I'll tell you what, folks, sign up for his Substack. I mean, I'm not here to pump him, but that's a good, that's, that's good stuff. And the... The uh, dark arts of corporate governance is something that is under-discussed, and I think it's actually like pretty value-add in the uh, little community that we have. So, Mike, if you're listening, shout-out to you. Of course he is. This podcast is sponsored by the non-GAAP Substack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
You, you owe us. Sure as hell isn't sponsored by Google. Not you giving us two dollars seventy-eight. Non-gap, Mike. You can you can PayPal us the two dollars seventy-eight. That's right. Yeah, we don't have a uh, high enough take rate on this stuff. What uh, what topics are we discussing today, gents? Now that we've got the uh, formalities out of the way, we can move on to the substance of the uh, of the podcast. What do you got, JT? I have a little segment prepared on the St. Petersburg paradox. Ooh. So we're getting statistical. He's somewhere hot and you're going to talk about something cold. (laughs) Something cold. I don't know. Toby, what are you going to talk about? Uh, Brand new topic. You guys have never heard me discuss this before. Uh, The value spread is wide. JP JP Morgan brought out this. this, I I just tweeted it out. It's really... uh, uh, interesting looking chart just showing the top, I think it's quintile versus the bottom quintile. Spread is wide, market is expensive, median is expensive. The top part is very expensive, bottom part, not so bad. Uh, typically, that's meant good returns for value going forward, but that's about all I have to say about it. But there'll, there'll be, I'll say it again in uh, just a little Let's bit. Stretch that out to 20 minutes. <laughs> good topic. This would be like writing a book where you have like a couple of really good things yeah. to say and then the publisher is like, okay, well, now you got to fill it all out, That's right? That's how it works. Stick in some pictures. Let people color it in. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to talk about, but I'm going to figure it out while we're talking. One thing, I'll tell you what I was really disappointed in myself. I was doing some, um, like a look back at last year and I, I had a lot of activity last year. I want to do a lot less this year. Mm. I do not want to touch stuff nearly as much. Uh, and I think I have the portfolio set up so it will require less touching. But yeah, I mean, yeah, right. March was forensic, like, like or frenetic, right? Like I did too much in March, but you know, whatever. I'll tell you what you didn't want to do is do nothing if you were long banks and airlines. That would have sucked. So you want to Jake, take it away, JT? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Um, so this starts out with the, I've observed like the, the poorest third of Americans buy more than half of the lottery tickets. And I've kind of always scoffed at that and been cynical that, that it's, uh, you know, this kind of preying on the ignorant and poor and, you know, it's like a kind of a predatory tax on them. And you know, I mean, everybody knows it's a negative expected outcome bet, right? Like the, the odds of winning times your payout is negative. So you, sh- you should never do it, right? But it turns out like that it's probably a little bit more complicated than that and a little bit more nuanced. And I was probably ignorant and foolish myself. To explain why a little bit, let's, let's play a little game here. And I'm going to put $2 into a pot and then you're going to be able to flip a coin. And if it comes up heads, then I will double the amount of money and we'll play again. But if it comes up tails, we stop, the game is over, and you get whatever's in the pot. Okay, so first, let's say it comes up heads, first coin flip, then I'm gonna put $4 in. Comes up heads again, I'm gonna put in eight, $8 are now in the pot, 16, 32, you get the idea. Well, you know, if you, get, if you were lucky enough to get up to 10 heads, it'd be a little over $1,000, uh, and then, but crazy enough, the way that compounding works, uh, you know, 40 heads in and you're you're up to like a trillion dollars. <laughs> but you know the odds of, of flipping heads 40 times in a row, relatively small. Now, what's interesting about this is that, you know, we could ask ourselves, what's the 
average expected payout of this game. And the math is such that it's it's basically like X equals two to the power of K, where K is the number of coin flips. And, um, you know, so if you multiply it out, it's like you have a 50% chance of winning $2 plus a 25% chance of winning four plus a about a 12-ish, or, or sorry, about a, uh, yeah, around a 12% chance of winning eight. And so it's it's like one, you know, one over that number times the payout. And you keep each one of those turns into the number one, basically, right? So one half times two, one quarter times four, one eighth times eight. And you keep adding them up, and it turns out that the answer is actually infinity because it's just one plus one plus one plus one forever. Um, so the average expected payout in one way of calculating it is, is that it's it's an infinite payout. So then the next question then that you ask yourself is, it seems very odd because to your gut tells you, shouldn't it, you know, I'm expecting to probably lose within, I don't know, two, three, four coin flips. And therefore I'm looking more at like an $8 maybe outcome. Maybe I'm not even going to be able to buy lunch with it. And yet it's telling me I have an, an infinite expected outcome. So the, the question gets interesting when you ask where, how much would you pay to play this game? And if it's a truly an infinite outcome, you should be willing to almost pay an infinite price. Like your entire net worth, you should be willing to put up to play this game, even though eight or ten dollars is maybe what you would, you know, kind of hope or expect to to end up with. Um, so this this oddity was a thought experiment that was developed in 1738 by uh, this Swiss Swiss mathematician named Daniel Brunelli, and Brunelli was living in St. Petersburg, Russia at the time when, when he developed this. And he, that's why it's called the St. Petersburg paradox. Okay. So we all caught up to explain And this, by the way, this is the same Bernelli who has the Bernelli principle, which is the, what explains like why an, an aircraft wing produces lift huh. like that, that Bernelli, uh, effect or principle is the same guy. So anyway, Smart dude, obviously. So how much would you guys pay to play this particular game, knowing what we just set up? It's a difficult one, right? Because you, you, you do that calculation, your expected return is, is infinite, but it's a vanishingly small number and a vanishingly big number. The likelihood is very low on a very large payout. So... Yeah, so that's why you you tend to be at the lower end rather than at the closer to infinity. So, yeah, I don't want to give you much for it. I'll give you five bucks, ten bucks for it. Yeah, I'm right. I'm right around the same. <laughs> okay, so here's where at Bernoulli actually Bernoulli actually had a a pretty interesting insight, and he he did what he he observed basically that like there's diminishing marginal utility to each dollar. Similar to like what Buffett has said about why would you risk what you have and need for what you don't have and don't need, and he he came up with this idea of logarithmic utility, which then allows you to it basically sort of discounts the numbers that are up way high and puts more weight on the front end of of the payments, and using that you would actually end up with a if you had a one million dollar net worth you should be willing to wager around $20. And then if you had like a $1,000 net worth, you should be willing to go up to around $11. Um, so looking at, at this principle, all of a sudden, like a lotto ticket, if, there, if wealth is truly logarithmic like that, which it probably is, then playing the lotto 
as a poor person or um, you know less privileged suddenly is like actually sort of mathematically a viable thing to do and maybe it isn't as predatory and it isn't as dumb as it sort of seems at first blush so i felt like oh I, you know i was uh, i was probably judgmental about that before and i shouldn't have been it's a bernoulli came up with an early version of uh the um, Kelly criterion. His statement of it is it's geometric return, but it's it's a slightly. He, I forget what Kelly added to it to, to turn it into the Kelly criterion. Bernoulli got it in one specific instance, but it doesn't apply to all instances of Kelly. I think if I have it right, it's that um, it's the irreversibility of time is what Kelly added, but that's okay. You have to run that one past me after the podcast is done because I. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, um, so, to keep well, to keep going on this. Oh, go ahead, Toby. Uh, just observation. The the only point that I was going to make was that if you if you Kelly, you know Kelly is the the correct statement for for playing the game. But I think it's Paul Samuelson who who wrote the the single word rebuttal uh, that only had the 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 syllable sorry the single syllable rebuttal that only had the one the final word had more than one syllable in it, and he points out that it's not independent of your own wealth playing the game. I don't know where the break points are, but clearly there's some point where once you've got all of your living expenses and everything else is covered, then you should be prepared to just about swing for full Kelly. But up until that point, you probably... But then some people play it the other way around where when they, you know, if you get to like some very big number, whatever that might be, 10 or $20 million of net worth plus, then you might Take just... Take all the chips off the table. And there, there have been practical... Fuck no, dude, you go for your, <clears throat> go for your jet. Well, there, there are practical discussions of it right now on Twitter because there are people who've got that kind of money in Bitcoin and Tesla. You know, they're showing their accounts where they've uh, got like $20 million of Tesla. And guy. it's funny to watch the comments underneath where people are like, why don't you just take off, you know, take off 19 and you got 19, whatever, after tax, let one or something ride on Bitcoin or Tesla. It's all about step changes and in lifestyle, like, no man. Well, you don't get to that point if, you, if you're... Uh, if you've taken that advice, Used any you, kind of valuation, you took that advice. <laughs> well, you took that advice, you, you know, you just, yeah, that kind of attitude doesn't get you there in the first place. That's the, that's nope. the difficulty of this game. Yeah. So in, in researching this, this topic, um, I came across a post from mostly borrowed ideas and, uh, that he had last summer and he referenced article actually from 1957 by David Durant. That's called, Growth stocks and the St. Peter's uh, Petersburg paradox, and in it he he kind of he basically like draws the correlation between a, this sort of like infinite outcome potential, but like vanishingly small odds of it you actually being able to realize it. Um, and one of the quotes he he has in there is like, "Is it possible the market may at times pay too much for growth?" So back in 1957, these conversations were happening, right? Like. We've made almost no progress on this, uh, and that's kind of actually what um, mostly borrowed ideas is to talking about. Is he's you know he says that th it's possible that some of the SaaS companies today may be like that you know forty heads in a row flipping, and so you know you would as a basket sort of be willing to bet on them as you know one of those potential infinite outcomes. Uh, but he has a really nice quote in here. The path dependency and optionality embedded in many of these SaaS or technology stocks may make it a durable mystery for any investor to come up with a valuation method to value these businesses. So, you know, the fact that that the the fact that it's a paradox that's 
couple hundred years old and we're still talking about it means that it's really hard to value this type of situation. And if growth stocks, in particular, some of these you know SaaS names are really look a lot like that. Like no wonder, kind of using traditional things like DCF or just it just makes it it it's unlikely that we're going to be able to have much penetrating insight into what what's going to happen. And as somebody else pointed out in the comments, and uh, it's regularly pointed out every time somebody mentions uh, Kelly, that the average across the every person who employs Kelly and every person who employs the strategies is different from your own your own personal outcome, which is highly dependent on your first few spins, particularly so in the Bernoulli example, right? Where if you lose on the first one, it's all over. But the yes, the average non-ergodic is, is the term. Yeah, so the average is skewed by the big winners. It's it's got a gigantic right tail distribution, and you're most of us are clustered well below the mean. And yet, people are betting right now. Well, at least in my estimation, that there's a lot more people who think they're going to be catching this right tail, and they're paying up to play this this game. That's the challenge, right? If you look at the the big winners that we've had over the last, I mean, I guess Tesla's not an example because Tesla's had. A, pretty big win over the last and i guess bitcoin's the same they've sort of both roughly 10x or something over the last year or so but for the for more than 10x you really need to have paid funnily enough you need to pay value prices for them to get the to get the really big <laughs> compounding going yeah i don't know that we have standing to really talk about this yeah i, I mean when you're saying well for the if you know you're only up 10x for the next 10x you really got to pay right uh I don't know that we're, we're the guys to come to for that kind of advice. But that said, I don't know how much of the, how many people out there are truly playing an investment game versus playing a Momo game tied to low rates and uh, thinking that they're brilliant. I'm not sure. I've said in the past, I think it's hard to figure out which ones. I know I, I know a couple of them that I have a lot of respect for, but um, a, lot of the, a lot of the comments that I see maybe... Well, leave thought, me wanting for more work. I thought I copped to it earlier when I said that the problem with the, uh, you know, the attitude that says take, take the nineteen off the table when you get to twenty is that you don't get to twenty in the first place. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, to to give like to give Musk credit, the reason that Musk is the richest man in the world currently, or, or is is or I don't know exactly where it is, but he's like he's there. He's he's right there. It's because he's left his entire net worth in Tesla. And he's just ridden it. Just let it ride, let it ride, let it ride, let it ride. Like, you got to respect that. He's running it. He's an owner-operator running the whole thing. I take my hat off to him. Let it ride. Yeah, uh, there is an element of truth to that statement. The other element of truth to that statement is if you are someone that has $20 million of stock in Tesla and you are unlevered, and your entire life is dependent upon that one position, that's quite a bit different from Elon Musk, who has almost certainly all his travel expenses covered by the company, a salary covered by the company, got a ton of options, and is playing a huge other people money levered, levered game. So you're not making the same bet. He's, you may think it's the same bet, but if you think it's the same bet, you don't know what the hell you're doing. He's got lots opinion. of houses, but he's got houses and things because he was X.com into PayPal. I mean, I'm he, not saying he's like pillaging Tesla for his houses. What I'm saying is like the reason he's the richest man in the world 
is his stock has gone up a lot and people were willing to give him a lot of options. It's not like he bought that stock and held it. The way that he has made it is but most not... Of it, most of it is, isn't it? I mean, look, yes, but uh, it, other people's money has a huge, huge is a huge part of the reason why he's so rich. It's the part of the reason that everybody gets rich. It's part of the reason that Buffett's rich. But, you know, my man didn't do it through option grants, y'all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. that's fair, but like how do you how do you keep how do you keep Musk interested at uh at this kind of level? Like the, I don't know that the big option grant does much anyway, but he's he needs some sort of recognition for like getting that like when it, when when they wrote these option grants and they they were like, if he could get like, imagine this world where Tesla gets to like a thousand, you know, whatever it is now, a trillion dollars or whatever, and that, like, they're like, sure, Elon, if you can get the if you can get the share price, that will we'll sling you a hundred yeah, yeah. billion dollars. You can have that. Yeah. And he's like, so Elon just heard that and went, okay, I'll just get that results either. That's the amazing thing. Didn't require much business results to get there. I mean, to give them to give them credit, they are making more and more cars. Like every time, like the business is doing something. It's, the business is producing more and more cars. People like those cars. People feel very strongly about Tesla. I mean, it's. I'm starting to think that maybe the community around it makes it kind of, it's It's sort of an invincible business. I don't know if the stock is invincible. The stock can do whatever the stock's going to do, but the, you know, Musk really? is- Really? I was going to say it's the other way around. <sighs> an invincible <laughs> stock in a fragile business? It's very possible. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Look, it's a great product. It's a product that's ultimately going to change the world. And that's what I would say about Chamath too. If somebody like really pushed me on it, I'd be like, you know what? Uh, it, I may not want things done in the same way. I may not go about things the same way. If he is successful in what he's doing, we need people to take risks like that in order to push the world forward. And, you know, maybe in the, in the same shoes, I would feel the same way. Serious question, just, not trying to be snarky, but what, what risks has uh, Chamath taken? I think he has used his profile in a way to elevate a lot of companies and raise a lot of money for things that he deems worthy of raising. And if he is correct on that, I do think that there is... I think the argument of reflexivity and getting somebody like him to stamp your product and go out and pitch it can create a a, a, a uh, sort of somewhat virtuous cycle where it gets sort of heat going into the headlines and then people want to join. I mean, I, I do think that stuff's real. Whether or not I'm willing to pay for it is a completely different question. I don't invest in it, but I also think that saying like that's not how the world works is sort of like not really living in reality. Is, so, does his billion come from uh, space? No, I, most of it comes from Facebook, right? Oh, okay, okay. That's what I thought. I don't know. I'm. I, I don't know that much. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. A... Something that pisses me off about him is, you know, I hear him on a in an interview say that we're more likely to get Kim Kardashian as a president in the future than we are someone that's steeped in policy. Like it'd be, be nice. I, I'm sure it is, and I'd like him to solve that problem rather than work on IPOF. You want to save the world? How about we don't go down the world of, uh, you know, Kim Kardashian, POTUS? I mean, she's done some work trying to get uh, wrongly incarcerated people out of out of jail. Yeah, I'm not saying that Kim Kardashian can't do good things for society. I'm saying that she doesn't deserve to be president. That's that's <laughs> a difference. Well, okay. when you put it like that, it sounds pretty reasonable, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
So, you know, but whatever, man, he's doing his thing. And, and Elon did his like Elon did change the world. So I'm not going to shit on that. I just, you know, if you're asking me for the stock, it's not a stock I would buy. But I'm also not changing the world. I have a hard enough time getting dressed in the morning. <laughs> are, we, are we still, is there still more Bernoulli, more St. Petersburg paradox to come? Oh, yo, wait, I had a follow-up yeah. on this. This reminds me of what I talked to uh, Sean at Ensemble about and how he was saying, you know, like, if you offered me two to one odds that the sun was going to come up, you bet that a lot harder than maybe a bet that has a higher theoretical expected value but less probability of success. And, I, I mean, I I have not said it that articulately, but that was one of the reasons that I was really table-pounding on Curate, is, like, I thought that the valuation had gotten so low that the probability of real permanent impairment was almost nil. And, I mean, obviously, it could have happened, but that's what I think Buffett is so good at waiting for, right? Is, like, he waits until that... You know, it's like Toby when when we were talking when you were talking about, you know, I, I'm looking for maybe maybe the invincible strategy returns less than the deep value strategy, but I view it as almost risk free return. I understand it's not risk free return, but that's how I view it. Like right. that is what really waiting and being hyper disciplined on business quality and valuation gets you is it gets you the reduction of downside probability and a much tighter distribution of outcomes right so you can bet that hard if you're really right and you're really patient um chris where Bo you know chris bobstrand did that with berkshire he, he put a lot of his fund into berkshire when it got cheap yeah because berkshire like virtually no downside pretty good upside but you know the upside is uh pretty solid like you, you know what you're getting there you you might you might the the down the the zero is off the table basically that's yeah, the time something a bit hard this is sort of a tangential thought, but it, it is related. And what I've been thinking about lately with like some of these quality, and this actually is going to pair nicely with your uh, idea about the, the spread. Um, you know, maybe you don't deserve a market. Now, I understand this is silly because these quality companies have like outperformed the market so heavily. But maybe going forward, like you don't deserve a market return for some of these quality names because they are really de-risked. And I think that, you know, to come out the other side of a of a pandemic and be you know to have shown like hey we can flex our muscle we can get stronger through this like maybe that equity is not entitled to an S&P return and maybe that's not a bad risk adjusted bet either well i think that that's a, that's a true statement right that's that's literally uh what i think is going to happen that the lower risk companies are going to have a lower return and that, well, that's one of the arguments for why value works. That's the the efficient markets argument for value is that it's a risk trade. You're getting paid more because you're taking on riskier positions. I personally don't yeah. subscribe to that one, but that is, that's that's the. But we're, we're talking we're talking a slightly different. We are, it's not it's not a direct application of, of Fama French, but it's we're talking the same yes. idea in a sense that riskier stuff should trade at a discount which should then generate a higher return if you hold it you should be sort of agnostic as to which basket you hold like they should um like if you think about it like some sort of uh monte carlo test the two portfolios should deliver the same return it's just that one portfolio does it by the positions in, some of the positions in it deliver a lot more return and some of the positions in it are donuts and the other one they deliver lower returns but they're more of them deliver the lower return so across the two portfolios your returns are identical 
But that's not the way the market works. The market gets them mispriced all the time, and that's kind of why this is a fun exercise. Yeah, well, I think to your point on the efficient markets hypothesis, if that was truly correct, uh, there would have been no way that Jake could have written a paper about this is value's worst opportunity set. You know, I mean, if only you had said this is the best opportunity set for growth, then we wouldn't be sitting here on a podcast. We'd all be in the Caribbean with on you, JT's man. JT's yup. Yeah, no shit. We'd be flying private. Holla. On Thanks JT's for titling plane. the article wrong and ruining my life, Jake. Yeah, no, but um, just, just smart enough to get a tenth of that outcome. <laughs> but but um, what we were talking about, about the risk-adjusted returns potentially being lower, I guess that it would make sense to me that after a pandemic and after such a shock to the system that these quality companies and the things that have less business risk are perceived as that much safer and therefore the crowd bids the price up way too high because, I mean, one, there really is no alternative. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to go to bonds to, like, actually compound wealth? Not anymore. So um, I sort of understand the run. I understand why we are where we are. But, uh, you know, on a go-forward basis, I'm, I lean towards you guys, which is why we all see the world similarly. What, what are we talking about when we say risk? What's our, what's our definition of risk here? Um, I mean, I think that the return that you get for the underlying business risk that you're taking is how I would define it, not like beta or anything like that. It's twofold, right? It's like that. what are the chances that the company can continue to execute? So it's a business, business risk that the business can continue to do what it does, compounding and growing. Like how much are you paying for the growth? How likely is the growth? And then there's also sort of balance sheet financing risk how you know how leave it is this company and so there's two that there's two ways that you get into trouble as a as a business and that's the nice thing about the tech companies most of them have got pretty good balance sheets and those businesses are like recurring revenue where it's all short it's like got to pay month by month those are great business models and they're virtually um you know the marginal marginal customer is basically cost free so those are, that's that's a really great business. That's why they trade so expensively. Then you've got a valuation risk in there as well, and that, I think that that's the that hasn't been a factor for about five years now, but that has historically been a factor, and I think it will be again. I don't think it, I don't think we trade like this forever. I think we're going to see a little bit more volatility. Yeah, I mean, I, I can, that's probably right. I can see it when I do like a market level valuation. Not that this is really relevant for anything, because not. I'm not buying the market. No, none of you guys aren't buying the market. But it does sort of, I do think it's important to think about base rates. And I do think that where the market moves, sometimes that impacts your portfolio. You, it, correlations, you know, it's kind of an old saw, but it's true. Correlations really do go to one. Uh, at least it turns out. And if you're a, if you're a value guy, correlations go to 1.2. Two. Two. Yeah, two. <laughs> they go down a lot more than the market. The thing that's nuts about where we're trading to me is not just the um you know it's not just like these SAS names i mean i just pulled up american airlines this thing in 2017 had a 44.7 billion dollar enterprise value today it's 42.1 billion i mean the now yeah the, is equity the mix of is equity changed yeah the equity is compressed from 24 billion to 9 and the debt's gone from 25 to 41 Oof. the idea that that equity like 
the free cash flow that's going to come to that company is not coming to equity for a very long time. Like you can't just continually raise debt on an airline and not pay it back. So, you know, like, I don't know, is that stock cheap? JPO says otherwise. People might do well on it. And I understand, like, to your point on the JPO thing, you can carry more debt, right? Because interest rates appear to be lower for longer. But um, I, I'm not convinced that there's not a lot of overvaluation everywhere. Now, you obviously, like, work to avoid that, but um, not a lot of this cheapness. Back to the li liquidity versus solvency, right? I mean, they're sure they're liquid. They're able to roll over their debt keep the paying the bills even though they're not flying but someday you have to actually make some money for your for the equity side don't you so that's what or you're do you just wrong. always get to roll it over that's is, that's the error that you've been making <laughs> every time it gets me <laughs> well a lot of the times you do get to roll it right i mean a lot of the times like the debt doesn't get paid back and that's sort of where a lot of the equity returns out of a levered levered equity strategy come from but you better have an organization that's growing and I guess what I'm saying is Airlines, American Airlines, like, layup. what? Airlines, that's a layup. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. It's just a different bet. Um, so it's, it can do well. It's, this is a nice segue into my topic. Because, so I, I, I said everything I was going to say in the intro. I'm not, I'll, I'll rehash it again just so I can pad some time here. But uh, JP Morgan has this fun chart. I just, I just really like the chart. So I tweeted it out a little bit earlier. But it's basically, it's got... Uh, I think it's about 25 years. Might be, might be longer than that. Uh, actually, I think it's a lot longer than that because 2000 is uh, about midway through. But 2000, very widespread. We've talked about this a lot of times. JT wrote the article in real time in about 2014, I think it turns out. And I, I retweeted it on Greenbacked, which was my blog pre-acquirers multiple. Um, when the spread gets very wide, that means the most overvalued companies are very overvalued. The cheaper companies are cheaper relatively. Um, typically, that means, you know, basically returns follow. The, uh, they do eventually follow multiples. I mean, I, I know that that's really, uh, that's anathema. You're not allowed to say that anymore, but that's kind of, that's what the data <laughs> shows. <laughs> I don't Wrong. know what to say. Wrong. Yeah. So now they're very, like the expensive stuff is, is, is about as expensive as it ever gets. Um, the cheap stuff is not super, super cheap, but it's it's way, way cheaper than uh, than the expensive stuff. And so the spread is very, very wide. And JT wrote a great article in 2014 in real time saying that he thought the value uh, spread was so tight that it portended bad returns for value coming forward. So 10 out of 10, you got that exactly right. You just didn't tell us to go and buy growth at that time. So... Uh, only half marks for for, for that, and I, I read it well, and tweeted can, it. I think actually, about it. I, and can I uh, launch a, a small defense of that? Yeah. At the time, the that average that was tightly clustered was a relatively expensive average. Right. I just di I didn't think that that offered a very good risk reward, even on the growth side. I understand why it was relatively a better bet than value at that point, but I thought the whole thing was relatively expensive, and that it was more likely that everything would come back down to a cheaper level. And that was where I was 100% yeah. wrong. Like we just got more expensive. So now, we, now we've got a really like, widespread and everything's going to come back was, down. Everything else got more expensive, pulled the averages up, blew the spread out. Uh, so I, I missed that the upper half of the, the blowout. So what happens now? We get 
the, the spread closing with value staying exactly where it is? Well, here's how I've been thinking about it lately, and it's kind of scary. Yep. Um, we're walking this path where if we fall over to the left, we fall into like a debt deflation. Um, you know, all this expensive stuff is gets repriced because all of a sudden risk is back again. Maybe the confidence in central bank omnipotence uh, comes into question like it has in other times. Um, lots of different problems that we can all recognize right now start mattering again, right? Like nothing matters at the moment, but you know, all it takes is a little bit of shift in the sentiment and price change to all of a sudden every data point's already there and lined up for it to matter. And that's like, okay, everything is catching down at that point, right? Yeah. All right. And then we have on the other side of the this little trail that we're walking, we have um, currency totally gets out of hand, melt up kind of, you know, indexing Mike Green type arguments where you don't want to be in anything except equities and like the longest duration that you can. Um, and, and you don't, you definitely don't want to be in bonds or cash or even maybe even like cheap stuff. Um, and then against that, you have maybe some kind of value rotation as well in that, on that side of the falling over. And we're walking along this path and like every single stimmy check that we send out every single problem that we, you know, gunshot wound that we bandaid over, um, <laughs> Is, is just narrowing this path further and further until we're just on this tightrope where at some point we have to fall one way or the other. I don't really know which way we're likely to fall. That sounds a little bit like Chris Cole's... Um, I mean, Chris, it is. he likes vol because both ends of the... Both tails are, are hedged in, in both of those scenarios. Or vol hedges both of those tails. But how does... Yeah. Which one's better for value? That's all I want to know. <laughs> Yeah, which one does value rip? Well, Probably I think that the melt away. I mean, if I had to guess, I think Although... that value's got shorter duration cash flows, right? More of the cash is up front. So if rates were to go up, uh, all else equal, I would think that value is going to outperform quite a bit. I, I don't know that for like your particular strategy, you need value's jaws to collapse. What you need is the businesses to continue on a similar path to what they've been doing. And then you need them to eat themselves and they should do really well over time relative to more expensive stuff that is buying in shares at a less attractive, you know, return of capital that said that more expensive stuff probably has a more attractive reinvestment return on capital. So it's all about, you know, whether or not that that's priced correctly. Right. But I mean, the thing is, if you have, you know, I don't know, 10 years, uh, I guess I was just looking at the median PEs. I mean, the median PE on the S&P seems to be just by my eyeballs somewhere around like 17 historically until the 2000s. Then it sort of went nuts. So, Single you know, year I PE? Yeah. I don't think that you can look at like this year's and say, oh, I mean, I think when you're buying a PE this high, you know, earnings are clearly depressed. So you got to be cognizant of the denominator. That's why I don't like the single year. That's why I prefer the Schiller PE. Like if the average yeah. is a little bit more useful in that scenario. Like the Schiller PE is at 35 at the moment. Yeah, I guess all that I'm saying is I, I don't know how much valuation bleed you need like to underwrite over 10 years in some names. Like, I, I don't know, but I do think there's... 
the the thing that I continue to come back to, and I know that I like cheerlead the melt up and make jokes and stuff, but um, I mean, the to me, the higher the market goes, the further away the American dream gets from the for the person that needs to save their way up the ladder. And like that really concerns me. And if I am right on the melt up, it's going to be really bad societally, in my opinion. Um, And then if I'm not right, like then you get all these pensions that are underfunded. So that's not great either. Uh, So I don't really know. Um, But I just think you try to find companies that are reasonably good bargains and you try to buy them and you find stuff that you think is going to be bigger in the future than it is today or smaller, but knows how to return capital and. You know, right. just try to remain flexible. I mean, that's one of the nice things. If something is undervalued and generating good cash flows and buying back stock, really what you want, and you hold it and you own it, really what you want is you want it to stay undervalued because if it keeps on eating itself, so that's like, you know, AutoZone and O'Reilly have both been really good at this for a long period of time that they're just always a little bit undervalued. And because they chew themselves up, they're always buying stock back. You get really good. Re- the underlying intrinsic value in those things is like leaping ahead. It goes really well. Yeah. And that's kind of like, I, I think about that for my portfolio as well. Like I kind of want them. It's it's like you, you're in, it's it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a bind because, you know, it would be nice to have them go up. I've, I've kind of forgotten what that feels like. But at the same time, like the cheaper that they are, the, the more stock they buy back, the, the cheaper they get. I mean, that's, that, that's a good scenario. Yeah. Yeah, like IBM. <laughs> yeah, IBM's a tough one, right? Because IBM, I, I look at IBM all the time, and like I'm, I'm aware of the fact that Buffett chewed on it and spat it back out again. So I'm like, <laughs> that, that doesn't look that appetizing to me. But I, it, like, it looks cheap. It's a good There's business. There's got to be some price where it's going to work out, right? High return on equity, high gross margins. Um, looks yeah, really but that cheap. doesn't matter as much when you're when you're shrinking, man. It's not like you're gonna get. I mean, that's, that's you like, need like the if it's earnings cheap. base to stay where it is. Yeah, well, that's the problem, right? That's the problem for all these things that that they're a little bit softer on on that front. But there are plenty of stocks that are high return on equity, high gross margins, trading really cheaply, and still growing. You just you know nothing you don't nothing is free in this market. You got to be able to look through. So it's like, you know, have a look at big. Uh, the, I don't. I don't hold any of these positions. This is stuff I don't hold. But I, I kind of look at that every now and again. I, I get. The, I, they, I get that they got a stimmy check, and so that probably flatters them a little bit. But um, or all of their customers got a stimmy check. There are lots of these oh, things around. Big lots, <laughs> motherfucker. Why? Why? Oh, because I talked to Alex about this thing when it was like close to the lows. God, that yeah, pisses moved, me off. Right? A lot of these things have moved a lot. I didn't. I mean, I didn't talk to him in March. That's a lie. But I mean, like late last year, I was looking at this and I was like, "How does this lose?" Uh, and you know, outside of a pandemic, I was pretty right. I mean, I put Biogen in that list. Oh, balls! Biogen. Intel's in that list. Intel's in that list. I know all the arguments for why it's not going to work. It's just you know, I'm looking for risk-adjusted bets. That's a that's a good risk-adjusted bet. This is not none of this is financial advice, by the way. You got to go and do your own research, yeah. but. That's my, off the top of my head. Three questions in, folks. We'll uh, we'll take a we'll start taking shots at them. Oh well. Ideas are only good if you make money on them. eBay, that's right. eBay's in that list as well. It's so funny to see the dot com one point trading cheap. What a, I mean, it just 
I was sat by the same Coming stream to for a too fan long. Near you. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, don't think it can happen to you. Look, Marcus Aurelius has a great line where he says, look at the past, how empires rose and fell, forecast the future as well. Yeah, I mean, the difference is like, I, I don't know. I mean, these dot-com 1.0 was a bunch of high valuations placed on, you know, businesses that didn't exist. Uh, the FANG is ob objectively not that. It may be rich relative to what you want to pay, but it's not like these aren't crazy dominant businesses. I don't think FANG is the best example of the most expensive Yeah, it's stuff. not. No, it's not. It's just the biggest so you can make the most fun of it. Everyone knows what it is. I, th I saw an interesting tweet storm yesterday. I think I tweeted it out where uh, somebody pointed out .com 1.0. Uh, somebody went, I, f I wish I could remember who this was, but they went back and they read, I think they had access to, uh, could have been Bernstein's articles from like the late 1990s. Oh, yeah. And they read, I think they said they spent hundreds of hours reading through them all and that they had some takeaways and the takeaways were, at the time, nobody knew it was a bubble. Nobody knew that the bubble had popped until well after the fact, including guys who were staking their careers on the fact that they were in a bubble and, um, you know, th they were calling for it to pop. They didn't know until well after the fact. And that's something that I've observed a few times too, that the market really just knocks sideways for about a year before it really, you, you go back and you try to, like the 2007, 2009 bear market t started in June, 2007, but it really didn't bite until the fourth quarter of 2008 when people realized that they were down a lot so you just don't get any you don't get any real forewarning and the other thing that he pointed out was that the businesses that were really driving the overvaluation were all really good businesses it was like and i've said this before too it was like ge and things like that these like looked a little bit more nifty 50 like the internet companies were kind of a sideshow it's like maybe it's a little bit like the SPACs. you know everything's going public at crazy value like bill ackman $500 million in Bill Ackman's SPAC trades at $700 million. Plus you got his dilution coming in there as well. So there's 40% of hot air in there. But it's the ax back, bro. You gotta, you have to well, pull off a pretty good buy if you're going to get over that hurdle. But here's the crazy thing. He's got, he's got a closed end fund out there trading at a 25% <laughs> discount. Yeah. So go buy. So if you, back the fund. Yeah, yeah. Arbitrage. Yeah, somebody pointed that out. That's that's a good that's a good yeah. approach, right? <laughs> you got to uh, hold what's in the fund. So I got this is a question. Which I, means you want Chipotle here, right? Like, I mean, uh, what like a thousand PE or something, Mama? I you would, they got a good app, bro. JT was buying Chipotle <laughs> at one stage there. But you were buying a bit. You you were buying. This is a few years ago now. You've uh, owned, you've owned Chipotle, haven't you? No, my lament with Chipotle is that I didn't buy it in okay. like 2008. Instead, I was tying up money in a bunch of net nets and <laughs> a bunch yeah. of illiquid yeah. net nets that I thought I was not taking market bet yeah. risks. And uh, that happened to a few of us. I won't name names. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you uh, an idea that I saw like floated on Twitter yesterday that I found myself somewhat interested in was Simon Property Group. Like I think malls come back; they got good malls. I bet their I bet their tenant base gets better over time uh, out of COVID. I could see that doing pretty well. Yeah, you, why not go all the way then and go Shield or 
because that's, those are dog shit assets run by people that I have not seen any competence of actually returning anything to the shareholders outside of making Eddie Lampert richer. You're not a value guy until you've lost money in Shield. Yeah, no. I mean, look, somebody's going to be like, well, Pabri did well in Seratage. Like, fine. I mean, you're right. And I guess that that's changing a little bit. I, I mean, if I'm going to play in that space right now with the amount of inventory that's about to hit the market, I don't want to do it with Eddie Lampert. And I know that Eddie Lampert's returns have been incredible, but I have not seen any evidence out of Sears over a long time horizon that the minority shareholders in that entity have been taken care of. So, you know, by the time that I can see it, I probably won't want it anymore. Somebody else will probably be like, well, Buffett's involved. He's on the debt side. It's different. Uh, I got a good question. Uh, this is probably a bill question, but um, with low interest rates, uh, sorry, it's, it's an interest rate bank question. You, you can take a shot at it too. I'm just no, saying it's sweet. not for me. What is it? Yeah, like low interest rates. What, what, low interest rates, uh, good or bad for banks? And, and where do we need interest rates to get to? Because I, I noticed that the 10 years in that crept to like 1.15, I think last time. I yeah, well, you need, you need a spread between your short rate and your long rate more than like where do interest rates need to be. You need the curve to be up. Yeah, so you, the, the shape of the curve is more important than the, than the movement of the rates. Yeah, because you're borrowing short and lending long. So you want to arbitrage that. JT, do you want to do you want to take a swing at that one too? To offend nothing to add. <laughs> uh, I saw somebody else ask about Wells. I don't have any strong like view on. I mean, I think Wells is still probably good. I think I it was better when I said I liked it. I sold it because of tax purposes. I'm an idiot. I don't own it now. I think Scott Powell will almost certainly get the asset cap lifted. I think Yellen is actually really good for Wells Fargo because I think she can use it as an example of when the government stepped in and changed an organization for the better. I think Scharf is going to turn out to be a really good CEO. Those are my thoughts. That's all I got. He came from Visa? Uh, well, originally he's uh, boys with uh, Diamond and was with uh, Bank One. And then he got put into Visa, and then he left to go back to his family. And then he was at um, Bank of New York Mellon for a little bit, but that was only like two years. And you know, people would be like, "Well, Visa is a great business," and he didn't do much at Bank of New York Mellon. So, I mean, I guess if you want to hold that against the guy, fine. What's your resume? Do you guys have any view on? Have you followed Standard and Poor's SPGI? Uh, loosely, I know some people that like it, and I yeah, think it's, it's a pretty smart idea. But you, you get a little dis so SPGI is buying info, INFO. You get a little discount if you buy it, info through it. But the problem is that SPGI is a stonkingly great business, and info is, seems to me like less good, paying a very high price for it. So I guess you got some questions then about what SPGI management regards as, you know, what their their capital allocation. They've done pretty well, but I don't know. Makes me a little bit nervous. I suspect they have a pretty good sense of what makes Info's businesses pretty good. Like, I, we used to subscribe to a business called Informa at the bank, and it was basically like Gartner for food and, and ag production. And, like, look, is that a growth asset? No. But, you know, the bank is going to pay whatever Gar uh, Informa asked them to pay right. next year. Right. right? So, I mean... 
eventually you get into this problem where you're like, oh, well, they can just raise price in perpetuity. I mean, there's not everyone can do that, but it is really integral information. And it is a really important second set of data to check, you know, like the government, the USDA information off of. So, like, if that is representative of their portfolio, it may not be growthy, but those are really good assets. Will we enter a doom loop of higher rates and lower stocks, Jake? That's that's a Jake question. Jeez. Um... Well, what happens if we get higher rates? You're going to have a problem refining the debt. So much problem with, yeah, all the debt refinancing at every level that has to be done. Um, I mean, it's the the pulling in of of risk at that point, the duration. I think we will see that people were making a lot of duration bets they didn't realize that they were making. Or maybe they knew and they figured that someone would bail them out. And maybe that is true. And maybe I'm like... going about it completely wrong well, but they figured that it'd never get like they'd never be able to raise rates don't yeah we can we can't raise rates so i'm my duration bet is is probably money good so keep going no it's it it's okay on the one hand it's short-term bad because everything's going to get shellacked on the other hand i think it's long-term would be much healthier for us as a society um, our economy, I think, would be less fragile. Um, punishing savers uh, at like the way that we have for the last, you know, forty years, kind of gr- increasingly punishing them, I don't think it's healthy for society. If you want to actually like form like capital and create jobs and all those kinds of things, I I I just think we'll. I think history will not look that kindly upon this era and cheap money the same way it didn't hasn't didn't look doesn't look kindly back at on John Law and other times yeah. where this experiment has kind of been done. Well, well, let me let me play devil's advocate and say we seem to be doing pretty well on the business creation front at the moment because we're you know Silicon Valley's going bananas. So what 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 changes if if rates go up? Doesn't that doesn't that go away? Isn't it the reverse? Uh, well, does it, I mean, this kind of goes back to that, what we talked before about, you know, are you overclocking the system in a way with, with low rates? Like, would we have made technological advances anyway with higher rates? Like people still want to find ways to do things in better ways. Does having a bunch of cheap money necessarily create the ideal soil in in which that idea can flourish? I'm not so sure that it actually matters that much. I don't know. It seems like a hard thing to answer. It's a very thing, hard thing to answer. Everything I should say should be like put heavily uh, discounted and, and caveated. You've also got, you know, Buffett's got that note where he says uh, interest rates act like gravity on the stock market. So interest rates go up, stock market goes down. Interest rates go down, stock market goes up. And you, you, you sort of encounter that problem as an investor. If, you, if you're looking at something that's really expensive and you're thinking about selling it, and what are your options? You're going to stick it in the 10-year yielding 1.5%. 1.15%. So you, the yield that you need out of a business to remain invested in it is low, which means that the multiple that you pay for it is high. That means it's an expensive, you know, then you want, that's, that's how we get to where we are. High growth, 
expensive businesses. But it also means that you are you're benefiting those who already own the assets at the expense of those who wanted to accumulate the assets as they were coming up the ladder and saving, right? Like we're we're pretty systematically advantaging one group of society against the other by keeping rates as low as they have been. Yeah, and I th- I think what I think what is pretty true is, is uh, and I would need to see, but I'm pretty confident this is right. The number of hours worked to buy a share of stock in the S&P is going up, and that is a bad thing for society, I think. Right? That that to me only only exacerbates an issue that's already a problem. Does that resolve itself by higher higher uh, salaries at some point? I think the thing that concerns me is what if all these tech valuations are correct? That would imply to me uh, that maybe fewer people are needed and maybe that's a Luddite answer of me and maybe I don't understand the jobs that are going to come up, but I don't think that the jobs that are going to come up are going to be that easy to just retrain the people that are left behind. I mean, I think we might have but hasn't you know, that real, always been the problem case? here. Hasn't that yes. been the case since like the industrial revolution when there used yes. to be people who made, fa- who made, you know, uh, fabric by, by weaving the loom and then they came up with a, with a loom, and the Luddites, literally, the Luddites went around smashing the looms because they were uh, taking jobs away and you couldn't retrain yeah. those people. I do think that has always been the case. I think that it is also true that um, the inequality has not been this large before. And is I think that, that there's a fragility in that. I don't know. I don't have every data point. <laughs> do you have the data against it? I don't. I just, I just wonder, like, when there were, like, when you had, when you had the French royalty in the palace at Versailles and people were like living in the streets. I mean, was that... Yeah, but how'd that work out for them? It didn't work out well. They lost their heads. Right. So that's my point. Like, I'd rather not go down that I, uh, path. I, I'm not proposing that it's a good thing. I'm just saying, I'm just questioning whether it's true. Well, that... yes, I agree that there have been societies where the, the wealth inequality has been larger. I'm concerned about the current one we're living in and what I see going on. But no. it, I'm not disagreeing. That's the part I don't like. I th- why are you disagreeing, Toby? I'm not. I'm Come just, on. I'm just, I'm just going for technically correct, which is the best kind of correct. No, I think that is, I, I think that is uh, a reasonable thing to say, but I, I don't know that this is a sustainable path we're on. Bill, that, you keep up that line of reasoning, you're going to be sending bombs in the mail soon. Oh. What? Ah, oh, dude, what? what that was the, that we was almost the had advertising We almost had... Like legitimately COVID, an episode COVID, COVID, that we are going to get 45 cents from Google split three ways. <laughs> and now you, what, this week, you have ruined Have it. Google send me the bill. Have YouTube. I'll pay the bill for YouTube this week. <laughs> <laughs> that works. I'm tired of splitting that. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that the, uh, the social media companies took a little whack uh, this week. So I don't know. Maybe that's the future. Yes. Well. Uh, they all flex their muscles, so we'll see what ends up happening. Yeah, it seems to be that's going to invite a little attack from somewhere. You want to be careful with that sort of stuff. You guys find the the piling on a little bit distasteful. Um, we don't have to get into like a lot of politics, but like Grubhub, I'm not going to deliver your <laughs> Wendy's burger now because you're. <laughs> yeah, well. Like okay, I you're inciting violence, so I'm not going to send you your burger. 
Is that where we are right now? I don't know. That might be unfair. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think uh I, I think I would draw the line short of that. I think somebody should be able to have a Wendy's burger. It's hard, right? Both sides think that At least arguing. until they're tried. <laughs> Once you tried, you don't get your Wendy's burger. You're allowed to have a Wendy's burger on your uh on your as your last meal, probably. That's to. true. Yeah. I mean, uh, but, you know, we do but, have a presumption of innocence. They just say sorry, we don't deliver. What are you gonna do now? Go buy one. We've devolved. Yeah. Ben Thompson's the guy to read on this, in my opinion. He had, you know, so. some good thoughts. I think it's it's one of those instances where both sides think that they're arguing from principles. They got interests that are conflicting with their principles as well. You just favor whichever, whatever is currently in your interest at the time is the thing that gets, is the thing that everybody seems to embrace as being okay. But then you know, you turn around and you let the other side have the keys to the. Uh, to the vehicle that you've built and uh, now it's not so much fun i would rather that we just played a little bit more uh neutrally rather than trying to put our finger on the scale all the time i think that that leads to bad outcomes i hope that well, was uh, taken australian to figure this out i hope that that was uh <laughs> oblique enough that nobody knows what i'm talking about yeah that... and you're not gonna get flamed for that <laughs> i left it to the last thing and that's time thanks very much folks it was really fun See everybody uh, next week. Cheers. Move with the rhythm. Shake it up, stop when the clock gets